If you would please turn your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 1, and uh, even as you turn there, uh, I just want to say what a joy it is uh, to be back with you all again. Thank you so much for your prayers uh, for me and my family. Uh, By God's grace, as you can see, we're fully recovered uh, from COVID. Uh, Thank you for your grace towards us and your prayers. And again, why I'm so thankful for a plurality of elders in the church, uh, I was blessed by the wonderful message uh, from Pastor Sam, our chair of elders, two weeks ago uh, about Jesus in the storm from Mark 4, and then uh, again blessed as Pastor Kurt began our sermon series through the book of Zechariah, and excited to be with you all again as we look at Zechariah chapter 1 together. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? That's a frequent prayer and cry of the people of God in the Scriptures. When God's people are broken by the trials that we face in this world and in this life, as we are broken and shattered by our own sin and our failure, the ways we fall short, as we face oppression and affliction uh, from the world, This is a frequent cry from God's people. How long, O Lord? Dear brother or sister, have you cried out that way? Maybe that's your cry, even this morning. In these hard days, in this season, this pandemic season, certainly that's been our cry as a church. It's it's nearly been a year now since COVID-19 took over our world and all of the restrictions came into place and Still continuing, how long, O Lord? How does the Lord respond to that cry? Well, in today's passage, we see this cry on behalf of God's people, and we see the Lord encourage His people with two visions given to the prophet Zechariah. We are looking at uh, two visions today out of the eight visions, you might remember, uh, that form the first six chapters of this book. We have eight visions in the first six chapters. We're looking at the first two today. And even through these two visions, we are reminded that in our brokenness, the Lord wants to comfort us, His beloved people, and to encourage us in doing His work. So our first vision is in verses 7 to 17, and it really has one main message. Be comforted. Be comforted. Let's look at verses 7 to 11. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, The word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. So how does the Lord comfort us 
through this vision. I want to show you three reasons. Three reasons this vision comforts us in our brokenness. First, the Lord comforts us by His powerful rule. We are comforted by the powerful rule of God. What does Zechariah see in this vision? What is the context? Look at verses 7 and 8 again. Verse 7 gives us the day on which he receives this. It's the 24th day of the 11th month uh, in the second year of Darius. And you might remember the context from Pastor Kurt's sermon last week. Uh, Israel has been in exile for their sins for 70 years in Babylon. They experienced a great landslide uh, and they are down at the bottom of the pit in judgment for their sins. After 70 years, God has brought them back to the land, a smaller group to rebuild. But they're still shattered and broken and discouraged under the rule of the Persian Empire. And in last week's message, the Lord speaks to them and says, Return to me and I will return to you. Well, today's vision comes three months, just three months after that message. And the Lord is now bringing them comfort through this vision. And, and what does Zechariah see in the vision? If you, if you look at verses 8 and following, you'll see that. He begins by seeing this man, a rider, on a red horse. And, and then he's looking. It's night. Night times, rider on the red horse. It begins to expand a little bit more. He sees more horses of different colors, red and, and white and brown and as you'll see, as we go along, they all answer. So there are riders on, on these horses as well. So this whole group of riders on horses in the night. And, and where are the horses? Where are they located? They're among the myrtle trees. These were bushy trees, kind of a little forest. And, and this group of horses and riders and, 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 and this forest of trees is, is in the deep, the glen, which is kind of a valley. So Zachariah is looking and this majestic, magnificent scene really of numerous horses of different colors with riders seated on them in the forest, in the valley. I mean, maybe you've seen movies or movie scenes, you know, where there's an entire army camped out at night uh, with the horses and horsemen ready for battle. Uh, can be quite an overwhelming scene. Or maybe you've looked on Discovery Channel or the National Geographic and you've seen horses running in the night, in the wild. It's quite glorious. And, and you know, as we want to interpret and understand what uh, this vision is saying, as we read the Bible, especially in visions like this, you might be tempted to, uh, you know, look at different things and think, oh, maybe there's a symbol here and a symbol there. So, you know, the colors of the horses, uh, uh, red and, and sorrel or brown and, and then white, maybe that means something. Maybe each color uh, means something. Or maybe you might uh, look at the location of the horses. Oh, they're among the trees. Maybe that symbolizes something. Or maybe, you know, you're looking at the number of the horses. Does that mean something? And, and really, you know, sometimes we come to the Bible like that. But the simplest way to, to answer all those questions is by looking at the text and seeing what does the text focus our attention on? It doesn't focus our attention on all these things. These are details just to give us the, the beauty and scope of the vision. The text focuses our attention on what the horses are there to do. What are the horses doing? Look at verses 9 to 11. Zechariah asks the angel, oh, what are these and, and what, what, you know, what is the meaning of this? And then 
there's an answer in verse 10. The rider on the red horse, kind of like the chief rider of, these, uh, uh, of this group, he answers and says, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. Verse 11, they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Great, now what does that mean? Well, some context might be helpful for us. You might remember that Israel is currently, at this time, was under Persian rule. They were under the rule of the Persian Empire who had conquered the Babylonians. And the Persian Empire in, in the ancient world at this time was one of the largest empires that had ever existed in the ancient world. The empire stretched from east to west. It was amazing, all the way almost to India. And they ruled over a large part of the inhabited world throughout Europe and Asia. How did the Persian kings keep their vast empire under control? How did they make sure that they know what was going on in every part of their territory? Well, they used a system of horses and riders. One ancient historian writing in a history book at the time, he says this, No mortal thing travels faster than these Persian couriers. Riders are stationed along the road equal in number to the number of days a journey takes, a man and a horse for each day. Nothing stops these couriers from covering their allotted stage in the quickest possible time, neither snow, heat, rain, nor darkness. The system of horses with riders was used by the Persian kings to rule their empire, to keep it under control. You know, if you were someone living under Persian rule at the time, and you were going for a walk and you looked up and see a, a rider on his horse, it would be a reminder to you that you are under Persian rule. It would remind you who ruled your nation and also of the fact that you are being watched. And here Zechariah sees these horses and riders going to and fro throughout the world on behalf of the Lord. Friends, the Persian king may sit on his throne and his horses may roam throughout the world. But there is a greater throne on which there sits a greater king who rules and reigns over all the earth. He is watching over his world and his rule is above all. The Lord, he is the sovereign God and the king over all the earth and all nations, even Persia, answer to him. Isn't that a comforting thought, brothers and sisters? That the Lord, our God, is sovereign, ruling and reigning. He is seated on his throne and watching over his world, watching over you and me. That no matter what is happening in this world right now, nothing happens apart from his knowledge, apart from his plan. Nobody can stop his plans. You know, one pastor uh, said some time ago uh, that microscopic images of the coronavirus show it wearing a crown. Uh, that's why it's called the coronavirus, by the way. The spike protein on the surface of the virus resembles a crown 
and, and hence the name Corona. Corona means crown. Yeah, this little virus may have temporary rule of our planet. It certainly feels like that. Yet Jesus wears a greater crown. And he is king over this and over every virus. In your personal life, dear Christian, whatever adversities you and I may face, whether it's cancer or COVID, whether injustice and oppression at work or persecution for your faith, God is seated on his throne. Not just in our personal lives, but even as a church, we face so many trials. But the Bible shows us that from beginning to end, from creation to new creation, the Lord Almighty is king and he is establishing his kingdom. His rule and his reign are already inaugurated by the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord, our King who has been crucified for sinners, who has defeated death, raised from the dead, and resurrected, ascended, and seated on high, ruling from heaven, even as his kingdom advances on earth through the church. We face so many trials. I mean, often we can come here and just wonder, oh, when is it going to be like it was again? You know, where, where, when will this room be full again? When will we have these limitations removed? When, when can we come and worship and, and just be together without the, the fear or, 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 or scare of viruses and, and other things? And we wait for that. But in the midst of this trial and every trial, beloved, Jesus Christ is building his church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Praise God. He rules and he reigns over all. And that brings us comfort. There's such a deep comfort from that, isn't there? But it also raises a question. If the Lord is good and he is sovereign and ruling, then why? Why is the world the way that it is? Why are our lives the way that we are? Why are the nations at rest while God's people suffer and are oppressed? That's the heart of the angel's response and cry to God in verse 12. A cry that he utters on behalf of God's people. This is our cry. Verse 12. And then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years. That's a beautiful prayer, by the way. To cry out, how long, O Lord? And through passages like this, the Lord actually invites us as his people to be honest with him and to bring our sorrows and our woes and our tears to him and unburden our hearts before him and say, How long, O Lord? You know, I've cried out like that these last three months in my personal life as I've faced one thing after the other, the, the loss of my dear father to cancer, which was very sudden. We didn't know he had cancer. And then the loss of our dear brother, Lamuel, here at the church. And then after that, we got infected with COVID and quarantined at home. 
I've had 21 days out of the year already in 2021 in quarantine with a watch in my apartment, crying out, How long, O Lord? The Lord loves to hear our cries. And in the answer that the Lord gives this angel here, this question, we see the second reason for our comfort. The Lord comforts us first by the power of His sovereign rule, by His powerful rule, and second, He also comforts us by His proclaimed word. God comforts us by His proclaimed word. Look at the Lord's answer in verse 13. And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. And if you're looking at the angel's cry in verse 12, you'll see these people had messed it all up. He says, How long, O Lord, will you have no mercy on Jerusalem, the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these 70 years? If you remember from last week, Pastor Kurt Kurt preached, uh, these people had experienced a spiritual landslide. They were living in God's promised land, but they sinned and rebelled against God with all kinds of sin, of idolatry, worshipping false gods, burning their children in the fire to false gods. And God said, enough. And he poured out his righteous anger and judgment against them, and they were carried off into exile. And then according to God's word, 70 years had passed and they were expecting God's promises of restoration to take place. They'd come back to the land, but they're still suffering. They're still broken, still desperate, staring at the results of their own failure. But even in their brokenness, to this shattered people, the Lord brings comfort by reminding them of his rule, and now he speaks to them by his word. Look at verse 13. The Lord answered gracious and comforting words. That word gracious there in Hebrew uh, can also be translated, maybe your Bible translation has, good and comforting words. The Lord speaks. And then what does he do in verse 14? There's an instruction in verse 14. The angel who talked with me said to me, cry out. Zechariah the prophet is commanded to cry out, to speak words. Preach, Zechariah, preach it. In their brokenness, in their failure, in their desperation, God speaks to his people with good, comforting words. Beloved brother or sister, is that where you find your comfort? Maybe you have been facing affliction. Maybe you are shattered. Maybe you're broken by your own failure and sin this morning. Do you find your comfort in God's word and in his precious promises? You know, it's always the case. This is how God always works, through the proclamation of His Word. In all our brokenness, in all our failure, in all our suffering, God comforts us through His Word. 
as we sit under the preaching of God's word, as we hold on to God's precious promises, as we read our Bibles, our heavy hearts are comforted. I want to speak to the children and and teenagers here. I know that as children and teenagers, you face big questions. You face heavy fears at times and struggles of your own. You know, God loves to comfort through His Word. And this Word will answer your questions and bring you comfort and rest in your soul. Parents, would you speak this Word to your children? As a a church, you know, this is how we should live with one another, comforting one another, encouraging one another with good, comforting words. Encouraging one another by speaking the promises of God and the word of God to one another, even as we cry out in our suffering, how long, O Lord? So what is it that God says here? What are these words that are good and comforting for God's people? Well, the Lord speaks a message of salvation and of judgment. Verses 14 and 15, he says, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry, but a little, they furthered the disaster. Verse 14, that is a message of salvation. God is exceedingly jealous for his people. And when the Bible speaks of the jealousy of God, it's, it's a way of speaking of the intensity of his love for his covenant people. God's covenant love, his heart overflows, is bursting, is burning with love for those whom he has called for his people. Dear brother or sister in Christ, is that not comforting? You know, godly Christians may disagree and even debate about how these uh, promises are fulfilled and whether we are to understand Jerusalem as literally referring to the earthly city or, uh, you know, if it's speaking of the restoration of a physical nation of Israel and quite frankly, your view might be different from mine and we can you know, disagree and love graciously. But I understand these words concerning Jerusalem and Zion to be ultimately fulfilled in Christ and in all who belong to Christ, both Jew and Gentile from all nations. You see, I I understand the Bible like many shadows in the Old Testament point us to Jesus and his finished work. And the earthly city, the holy city Jerusalem is one of those pictures that points forward to what God has prepared for us today as the people of God in Christ. The Protestant reformer Martin Luther said, and I quote, Our Jerusalem is the church, and our temple is Christ. Wherever Christ is preached and the sacraments are duly administered, there we are sure God dwells. There God is present with us by His word. Oh, brothers and sisters, hear what a good and comforting word this is, that God is exceedingly jealous for his people. His heart is bursting with love and compassion for you and me. In fact, the Lord is so jealous for us. His heart burns with such love for us that he paid for us the price in blood. 
You see, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the ultimate good and comforting word from God. The word made flesh for us and for our salvation. He is God's good and comforting word to us. Think about it. We just said he is the king, God Almighty, who rules and reigns over all the earth. But the king, our Lord Jesus Christ, entered his creation as a servant for our sakes. Because just like these people, the Lord was angry with us. We were under God's judgment for our rebellion, for our idolatry, for our sin. But because of God's great love, the Lord Jesus Christ took upon himself the judgment that we deserve. He experienced God's anger on our behalf, pouring out his blood and dying on a cross so that by repenting and believing in him, we might have grace and goodness and comfort. Oh, what comfort the gospel brings. And again, I want to speak to the little children today. Won't you come to Jesus? Jesus is so full of love and so full of comfort for your little hearts. Come to this comforting Savior. You know, at the same time, God's good and comforting word is also a word of judgment and justice. Verse 15, he says, I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease, for while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. God's intensity of love and jealousy toward his people is matched by an intensity of righteous anger and wrath toward the nations who live in arrogance and disobedience. He is exceedingly jealous toward his people, but exceedingly angry towards those who live in rebellion. You see, when God's people sinned, he brought judgment upon them. He disciplined them and punished them for their sin. How did he do that? He used these other nations as his rods of discipline. Nations like Assyria, and then Babylon, and here Persia. But these nations grew arrogant and proud. God was angry with his people, but what these nations did is they furthered the disaster. They were cruel and harsh and continued to afflict and crush the people of Israel. And, and now the situation that we see is God's people are suffering and in exile, but the nations are quiet and at rest and life goes on. The horses come back and say, all the earth is at rest. Well, God is going to reverse this state of affairs. The nations are at rest. They think that everything's cool, but they don't realize they're actually under the judgment and anger of God. And I want to speak to our non-Christian friends who might be here this morning. Maybe you're here, and maybe you don't recognize the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ over your life. Maybe like the nations in this vision, you actually think you're at rest, you're at ease, you live your life in a carefree way, doing dishonest things, you feel complacent and all is at ease. But I want to speak to you, friend, and, and say, remember this, God is watching. There is a God who is in charge of this world. He's the one who is ruling over it all. He sees all things, he knows all things, 
He watches you. He knows your life and your heart and all that you do. And you will give an answer to Him for your life. Maybe you feel very comfortable and at rest. But in reality, you must understand that you are under God's judgment and anger for your sins. The comfort that you feel in this world is not the true and lasting comfort that you can receive only under the kingship and lordship of Jesus Christ. And this same Jesus, the king who rules over all the earth, I want to appeal to you, dear non-Christian friend, on his behalf. The Lord Jesus calls to you with blood-stained hands, the one who was crucified for sinners like you and me. He calls to you to turn away from your sin and to trust in him today, to enter his kingdom today, and here you will find true comfort and true rest for your soul. So brothers and sisters, the Lord comforts us through his proclaimed word. And and like Zechariah, we should all remember that we too have a message to proclaim. A message of good and comforting words, but also warning of judgment for disobedience. And as we receive God's good words we see that they are filled and overflowing with promise. Why is God's word so comforting? Because what God says, God does. God does what he says. Which leads to our third reason for comfort from this vision. We are comforted by God's powerful rule, Second, by his proclaimed word. And third, we are comforted by God's promised presence. Look again at verses 16 and 17. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. And and it's really amazing if you're looking at this closely that everything that has gone before in the passage in in verses 12 and 13 are now matched in verses 16 and 17. So in verse 12, the angel asked, how long, O Lord, will you have no mercy? If you're looking at the text, you'll see that. And then here in verse 16, the Lord says, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. In in verse 13, the Lord answers with good and comforting words. I told you that word should be translated good. And, And here in verse 17, the Lord says, My cities shall again overflow with prosperity, some translations have, but it's the same word in Hebrew that we see in verse 13 which means good. The Lord comforts with good words. And here he says, my cities will overflow with good. And then in verse 13, of course, we saw the Lord answers good and comforting words. And here again in verse 17, the Lord will again comfort Zion. What God says, God does. In last week's sermon, we saw the Lord say to his people, return to me and I will return to you. 
In today's vision, we see the Lord say in verse 16, I have returned to Jerusalem, to this broken and shattered and desperate and failed people, to this community that is lying in ruin at the bottom of a landslide. The Lord says, I have returned and I will restore. Again, there are godly and faithful Christians who have different views on these, who believe that these promises are speaking of a restoration of the earthly city of Jerusalem or the nation state of Israel and God's plans today. And, you know, that, that is a debatable issue among evangelicals. Uh, but, you know, my own view is I'm, I'm persuaded that that's not a, a, the accurate understanding. I, I think these promises are far greater than we think. And, in fact, one thing we can all agree on is that these promises are fulfilled in a far greater measure in Christ. You see, at that time and in that context, God's people was a particular nation, Israel. God's dwelling was in a particular place, Jerusalem. And, and the Lord fulfilled these promises to them in a temporary and provisional way. They, they rebuilt the temple there. But as we come to the New Testament, we begin to see that the promises are more expansive and far greater. Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ comes and he says, I am the temple. He is God's temple. And in Christ, we become God's temple. All who are in Christ are now God's people. And as you read the letter to the Hebrews, you'll see that the earthly Jerusalem points us forward to a greater and more glorious heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly city. The Bible begins with God creating the heavens and the earth and the Bible ends in the book of Revelation in a new heavens and a new earth, the new Jerusalem where God will dwell with his people forever. That's the promise we're seeing here. God's house will be built, he says, and his house, his dwelling place is now the church and God's city will one day be established in glory, not just the restoration of an earthly city, but a gathering of God's people from all nations in his eternal dwelling forever. And so when we see this text where the Lord says, I have returned in mercy, as we see these promises of rebuilding and restoration, we hear God's word to us in our situation. We face oppression and affliction as the people of God while the world seems at rest and at ease. But the Lord Jesus Christ has already come to us, bringing salvation. He is present with us by His Spirit. And He will return to us ultimately once again forever. And we look forward to that day in hope. As we cry out, how long, O Lord, the Lord lifts our eyes from our present circumstances to the one who is seated on the throne and calls us to look forward to that day when he will come again and wipe every tear from our eyes. The Lord has chosen us in Christ. He is jealous for us. His heart overflows with love for us and he promises us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Brothers and sisters, this is why the church is so crucial. This is why our gathered worship is such a joy and privilege because in this time of worship together, in our relationships and community and life with one another, we are getting a foretaste of life in the heavenly Jerusalem. The church is God's temple, the display of his mercy and his love and his comfort throughout the world. 
So this vision brings us comfort through God's powerful rule, His proclaimed word, and His promised presence. The Lord comforts His broken people. But following comfort, there comes a command. After mercy comes obedience. And this is the biblical order, by the way. Comfort first, then command. We don't earn God's mercy by our obedience. No, we obey by His grace and because we have already received mercy. As we thinking about these promises of restoration, God is going to build His house, His temple. God is going to overthrow the nations and, and restore all things. How do we get there? What are we to do? How does this work out practically? How, does, how is God accomplishing the building of His house and, and the restoration of His temple and, and the restoration of His people? Well, He does it through you and me. And that's what this second vision today calls us to be about doing. The second vision calls us to get busy doing God's work. We're comforted first, and now we're commanded to be busy about the work of the Lord. Look at verses 18 to 21. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these, that is the craftsmen, have come to terrify them to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. And you look at a text like that and you say, wow, what does this even mean? You know, it's weird. Like horns, what, what kind of horns are these? Is this like trumpets, you know, that are blowing that kind of horns? Or is it like the horns of an animal? Or, you know, what is it? Uh, but actually, if you look at a little closely, you know, it's actually quite simple and unravels quite easily for us. The horns were a thing of terror here, right? They, they represent the, the nations that have scattered the people of God. So uh, I think quite obviously it refers to an animal's horns, right? That, that come and scatter uh, God's people, all right? And then how are the horns brought down? What is it that terrify the horns and cast them down? Well, you see four craftsmen. What are these craftsmen and, and how are the craftsmen going to defeat these mighty horns? And, uh, you know, you have to think about the context a little bit and, and, and think about it's quite a debated issue. Some people say, oh, the craftsmen are other nations and, and all of these things. But I think if we think of the theme of Zechariah and if we look at other places, the Bible speaks of craftsmen, it becomes quite clear. The book of Zechariah is about the rebuilding of God's temple. Who rebuilds a temple? Go back to Exodus chapter 36. I could show you numerous texts, but look at two Exodus 36 and verse 1, Bezalel and Oholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all the Lord has commanded. So they were building God's dwelling place at that time under Moses, the tabernacle in the wilderness. And who was building the tabernacle for God to dwell? The craftsmen. Uh, you see this again in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verses 15 and 16, when they were building Solomon's temple. He says, you have an abundance of workmen, stone cutters, masons, carpenters, and all kinds of craftsmen without number, skilled in working, gold, silver, bronze, and iron. Arise and work, the Lord be with you. The central theme of Zechariah is the rebuilding of God's temple. 
And these craftsmen are those who do the work of building God's temple. And as God's temple is built, and one day when it is completed, the cruel nations of this world will be brought to justice, and God's wisdom will prevail. And it's funny when you think of it, craftsmen are figures of weakness. These are not, you know, some mighty powerful guys who are going to defeat the horns with hammer blows. They're ordinary, everyday folks. Yet they are the ones who terrify the evil empires of this world. You know the uh, book The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien, and there's a movie rendition of that. And the, you know these hobbits play a crucial role. Little guys, smaller than dwarves even, play a crucial role in defeating the powers of darkness. And, and in the movie, you know, uh, someone asks the wise wizard, Gandalf, why the halfling, why the little one? And Gandalf answers very biblically, listen to this. Some believe that it is only great power that can hold evil in check. But that is not what I have found. I've found it is the small everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keep the darkness at bay. Brothers and sisters, this is how God loves to work. Through our weakness. God's people are weak. We are weak and insignificant by worldly standards, carrying the message of a crucified Savior. Yet this is what overcomes the world, not by power nor by might, by my spirit, says the Lord. The cross is the greatest display of weakness and defeat. Jesus, the master craftsman, building the temple of God by being nailed to a cross. And yet this is the greatest display, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 1, of the wisdom and the power of God through which God overthrows Satan's kingdom and overthrows the rulers and authorities of the heavenly realms. The church feels weak, insignificant in light of world affairs. We're not exactly being featured on on CNN, on the daily news. But brothers and sisters, this is where God is in action, fulfilling His plan and displaying His wisdom to the heavenly realms. And so as a broken community, as those who receive God's comfort, we're called to do everyday ordinary work of faithfulness. Encouraging one another, building up the church, staying faithful, and faithfully preaching the gospel message of our crucified Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you for your word. We pray that our hearts would be comforted and that we would get busy doing your work, building your temple. In Jesus' name, amen.